0: You may be seated. Good morning, church. Good morning. If this is your first time here, welcome. We're so glad you could join us this morning. My name is David. Um, our co-pastor here, Ruben, um, will be teaching in the next uh, service in Spanish. Uh, we are a church with two pastors because we're a church with two languages. And praise the Lord that he has put together one family that speaks two languages but shares one hope in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Well, this morning, we're continuing what's been a journey through the, the book of Philippians. It's a letter that Paul wrote from prison in Rome uh, to the church in Philippi. And we really are, are reaching at this point, as we enter chapter four, um, what is kind of the pinnacle of what Paul has been building to. I believe this is really finally getting into the primary purpose that Paul had in writing this letter, to address an issue of disunity that was there in, in the church that he had heard of and he knew of. And, and as we just look at the whole picture of this letter, we see Paul and his love and care and concern for the people in Philippi, and he can't be near them to care for them. And so we see that just in multiple times in how he speaks of longing to be with them, knowing that, that there's really two faces that that are are um, attacking or, or struggle that they that they struggle with as a church, one from the outside that he's already addressed in chapter three, um, that there are those that that would lead them astray from the truth of what they have in Jesus Christ, um, and he encouraged them to to uh, rejoice in the Lord that, that that was safe for them and and. Um, he was dealing with that, but I think more the primary issue that, that he wants to address with them is, is more of a conflict on the inside. And, and as I was considering just everything that, that is in the book of Philippians, it's thinking about really in our own lives, in our own families, and in our churches, um, in our church, capital C church of, of all of the believers that make up Kyle and Austin the believers that are in the world together, these two faces of conflict are are there for us as well. We have influences from the outside, and and I feel it especially as I have kids that are starting to grow up and to be uh, getting into high school, and and I think of the, the influences on them, and I can share some of Paul's concern that, no, I, I want you to be grounded and rooted in the Lord and, and, and to be able to see clearly what is true and what is right in the face of so many influences that wanna draw you away from that. But even in our own families also, we have conflict. Uh, we have uh, differences of opinions on things. Um, you know, we've never had that in our marriage, I'm sure. No, it, it's in every relationship, we find these times where, where we have conflict and, and we have to resolve that conflict. And certainly within the church, that's a reality that we need to, to have the wisdom of God and how we deal with conflict. It's a reality in the larger church as we consider our other uh, family believers that are within this, this community of Kyle. We certainly need the wisdom of God in how to deal with not only outside influences, but inner conflict. And that's what Paul's going to cover this morning as we get into chapter four. Let's read in chapter four, starting in verse one. Paul says, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we're not left without guidance. God, and where to position ourselves to be safe in a world that does have outside influences, in a world where we do constantly run into conflict, even in our closest relationships. God, thank you that your word gives us guidance. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just show us, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, what it is we need to do in our own lives to follow what you have prescribed for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in Philippians 4, 1, he says, therefore, we always ask when there's a therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? It's pointing back to what has come before, and I believe this therefore is going all the way back to the beginning. Everything that he has been building to in this letter is now here. This is a focal point of what he wants us to get out of this letter, what he wanted them to get out of the letter, and certainly for us as well. So what is what have we seen from Paul? We've seen from Paul his love, obvious love for the Philippians, his concern for their welfare, um, and and over and over again uh, uh, being reaffirming and 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 uh, and and telling them this is who you are in Christ, and putting within them an expectation of hope. You, you can see also his concern for their love for each other. Yeah, you know, even in First. In, in the first chapter, he said, my prayer for you is that your love would abound more and more. And And he gives them reason to rejoice, as he, even within himself, as he's just showing them in his own circumstance where there's adversity and things are not going well, and there are those that he could really get upset about that are against him there in Rome, that he is finding rege- reason to rejoice in the Lord. And by doing that, he's... He's preparing them for their, in their own situation to constantly be finding reason to rejoice in the Lord. He calls them to unity in multiple places. At the end of chapter one, he tells them to stand, stand firm in, in one mind and one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter two, we saw, as he said, complete my joy by being of one mind having the same love in full accord, one mind. And in that context and to that, uh, and to that purpose, he calls them to, uh, to humility and to self-sacrifice. And then he directs their attention to the example in Christ, of so perfect humility and self-sacrifice. And then he directs his attention to Timothy and Epaphroditus as further examples of what he's talking about they need to have in their own lives. And then we saw in chapter 3, just as he's always bringing them back again, focus on the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. And he says, you know, I, I keep saying this, rejoice in the Lord, but, but it's no problem for me to keep saying it, and it is safe for you. And, and in chapter 3, he addresses the, these outside influences, and he directs them again to a focus on the Lord and, and joy in the Lord And then he goes into his own life example of saying, look, all of these things that these influences would say, this is where you're gonna find your joy. No, I have that and more in my own life and I consider that nothing compared to what I have in Christ. And he directs them to Christ as a source of rejoicing, as a source of joy, as a source of hope. He says, don't put your hope in these things that are here your citizenship isn't here. That's finally what he's saying at the end of chapter three. Your citizenship isn't here. Your citizenship is in heaven. that don't put your hope in this body that we have here now and, and somehow making it righteous and, and, and building up a righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Christ and my hope is in a body that's gonna be a new body that's gonna be transformed someday to be like Jesus' body. And so that's the context therefore that now he's bringing into this verse. And in verse one, he's gonna give them specific instruction. But that instruction, even, he's, he's surrounding and wrapping up in his affection for them. He's packaging it. It's a pill that's sugar-coated as much as he can sugar it. This is what I want you to do, Philippians. And know that as I'm telling you to do this as a command, It's with love and my concern for you. So he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown. Now he had just at the end of chapter three been talking about how he's forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead and he presses on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is he saying here? He's saying, you Philippians who are my prize and joy. And the sense of crown there is not like a crown on your head, it's like an athlete who would be given this award and a wreath around their neck. You Philippians are that joy and prize of the upward calling of Christ that, that I have realized here on this earth. You Philippians, and then his command, stand firm thus in the Lord. And in case they didn't get his love for them, my beloved. <laughs> stand firm thus in the Lord. The word thus is now saying, you know, this command to stand firm in the Lord, I'm gonna tell you how to do it now in everything that follows. So this verse is a connecting verse. It's a therefore, looking back at everything that has come up, there's a specific command wrapped in love towards the Philippians with now a direction to say here what follows is how you follow this command. How to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm is a military term. We've seen it come up in other places like Ephesians. Has this idea of just like a soldier not moving, no matter what comes along, no matter what trials in life, no matter how bad things get or how good things are, to be immovable, standing firm in the Lord and what, what that means that we'll see here in a second. So he goes right into it, right to the heart of the issue that is there in Philippi. In verse two, he says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syndiki to agree in the Lord. He's not picking sides here, he entreat, He repeats the word I entreat twice to both of them. He's not getting into the issue, he's entreating them to agree in the Lord. We don't know a lot about these women. It's possible that they were there uh, at the beginning when, when Paul um, spoke and Lydia heard him at the river and there was ladies there meeting in prayer. They could have been there, we do know uh, from what is described and what follows, that they were co-workers. They're along with Paul. Not, not in general, but there's a specific group that he kind of calls out there of those who were laboring with him in the purpose of the gospel. So, so from there in the beginning, both of them were uh, core people within that church. They're, they're leaders within that church. And and we know that, that as a result of their disagreement, whatever that is, it's had a widespread effect on the body. And it's something that he's addressing the whole body as within this letter uh, in, in an issue of disunity that has grown out of this disagreement between these ladies. And it's, it's big enough that Paul has gotten word of it there in Rome, and it's possible he got word of it through Epaphroditus when they sent Epaphroditus out. They don't know how he got word of it but he's concerned with what this is causing within the body. The, the analogy of, of the church as the body of Christ um, is in multiple places and it's very effective. Um, when, when I was in high school, um, high school? Yes, it was high school, uh, at church, after church, went out with friends, um, actually between services, I think it was at the time, and we played three flies up. I don't know if that's a thing in Texas, um, in California. Three flies up is basically whoever's throwing the ball, you throw the ball, and once you've caught it three times and everyone's scrambling to catch it, whoever catches it three times gets to be the person who throws the ball, and you just go around and around. And so you're there with a whole group of kids trying to be the one to catch the ball that someone tossed way up in the air. And so there I am, stretched out in the air in just splendor and beauty and missed the ball and fell straight on my shoulder and my collarbone went pop broken too suddenly my whole body did not want to move when i moved i could feel the bones moving any part of my body moving i could feel that and i was just immobilized one part of the body broken Affecting the whole of my body. That's what it is in the body of Christ, and we feel that. And praise the Lord that we feel each other's pain. in In 1 Corinthians twelve, it speaks to that. It says, "It says when when one. Why am I not remembering how it says it? It says, when when, when one of us hurts, we all hurt." When one of us is honored, we all rejoice together. It it's, doesn't matter which part of the body. Every single part of the body is essential. If you've ever had your pinky toe hurt, you know every part of the body is essential. You think that, oh, why do I even have a pinky toe? But then it's hurt, and your whole body hurts. And there's no pain quite as hard as brokenness within the body. And so these two ladies have disagreement. There's conflict, and that has now grown to affect the whole body. So what's the first thing he's directing us to do? To stand firm in the Lord is to agree in the Lord. That's first, and really everything that follows Helps in that respect. How do how do we find agreement in the Lord? That word "agree," uh, we've seen that before. We don't really know that because in the Greek we've seen it before. Uh, we saw that at the beginning in chapter two when he said, "You know, complete my joy by being of one mind." That word translated "mind" is the same word used here for "agree," and it's a whole lot more than just you know coming to coming to terms. It's it's both intellectual and emotional. It's sharing the same purpose and sharing the same concerns and sharing the same desires and the same heart. It's, there, there's a fullness of agreement there that's to be found. How do we get to that? If you've ever been in conflict, it's difficult even to have just a basic level of agreement. But he's saying, I want you to agree fully in the Lord. How do we do that? If you could show the first difference slide. You and me, we live in our own circles. We have our own differences. And and it's not a big deal until there's conflict and there's disagreement. And now we have what can often seem like irreconcilable differences. Your, what, what makes you up, what's important to you, your life experiences, your personality, how God has made you is completely different than me. Sometimes we overlap. Sometimes we're just polar opposite. But God has made one body, and every part of that body is to agree in the Lord. How do we reach that kind of agreement? Well, our focus is on the Lord. If you go to the second slide, these two women both had their faith in Christ. It's very clear. They were there from the beginning. They they loved Jesus Christ. They were, they were co-workers for the cause of the gospel. But even then, they had differences. Even these dear ladies who were leaders, spiritual leaders, I'm sure, within the church as well, committed to Christ, were in a position of irreconcilable difference. How, how do we get past that? Well, I think Paul gave us an example in himself to that effect. If you turn with me back into chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. This is in chapter three, I said that, right? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We looked at that last week. Everything, my, my successes, my hurts, my pains, everything that, that is from the past, Guilt, shame, pride, righteousness, everything that I have made on my own, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what I have in Christ Jesus. And then what does he say? In verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. That word for think is the same word that's used to agree. It's the same word translated to have the same mind. It's, it's maturity. If we go to the third slide now, we're leaving behind who we are. Uh, go to the one you had before. With the me and the you up there. There we go. You and me leaving behind everything that is our irreconcilable differences. And before <laughs> us, pressing on, to everything that we have in Christ. And if that is our mindset, we're not changing our differences down here. If, if being in unity means that we need to shorten this gap, the, the, how you're made and how I'm made, those have to change, that you need to change to become like me, that's never gonna happen. If we have unity only because we hang out with people who think and act the same way that we do, That's a false sense of unity. It's not the unity that we have in Christ. The unity that we have in Christ is unity because the value of what we have in Christ is so much greater than anything that we have in our life that that becomes the the focal point and source of our purpose, of our goals, of our emotion, of what we desire and what we care for. And when all of that is caught up in Christ, then you and me are in agreement with what is most important. Do you see it? What he means, agree in the Lord. What follows in the next verse, I think, is helpful in accomplishing that. Because if you've been in that situation, you know how impossible it can feel to reach any kind of unity with someone you're in conflict with. He says in verse three, yes, I ask you also, true companion. This is a confusing bit here that a lot of people have said, who's that true companion? I thought he was talking to the whole, the whole group, my, my beloved, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and suddenly now it's a singular, and you also, my true companion. Who is he talking about there? Um, I, th- I think the best, um, th- there's a lot of possibilities. I think the best one is that the Greek word there for companion is is most likely actually a proper name, um, and you'll see if you have the ESV. There's there's a footnote there that another possible translation could be uh, loyal Syzigus. If I'm treating that Greek word as a, as a proper name, that's one thing. But but that's not the point here. And you can get dissuaded. You can get you know, off in the weeds with you know well, what is he talking about there? What what's important here is that he's calling for help from the body, to have a third party who is loyal, who is true to come alongside these ladies and to help them through that. We need the body when we have conflict to help us, especially if we can find someone who is that loyal follower of Christ who is outside of the conflict to come in and help us. So that's one thing that we have here. But then he also says, uh, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What is he doing here? He's honoring them. Just because they right now are the source of conflict in the church, which he could come down real hard on them, he is in gentleness and love, entreating them to find everything that they have in the Lord to agree on, to bring alongside a brother in Christ to to help them in that and lest anyone should think less of them than any other person in Christ, he's saying, remember, these are my fellow workers in Christ. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that should be our attitude towards everyone. No matter what they're struggling with, what they're going through, you are no less a child of God, and we are no less together in need of a savior. Our righteousness doesn't come from us. Our righteousness comes from Christ. And so if you're struggling and I'm in a better place, that just means I can come alongside and help you. It doesn't mean I'm any way better than you are. Important for us to realize in resolving conflict. All right. So we stand firm in the Lord by agreeing in the Lord And then we get this central message again. Of course it's gonna be here in verse four. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. So the second way that we stand firm in the Lord is to rejoice in the Lord. We should expect that's gonna be here. That's been his pattern all along. And he emphasizes it. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. If you haven't got it yet, get it now. This is vitally important. And if you consider what it's like when we're in the midst of conflict, if you could put that slide back up. When we're in the midst of conflict, our focus is horizontal. It's on our differences. We're not finding reason to rejoice in the Lord. Is there ever a time when when we can just stop rejoicing in the Lord and just kind of focus on that conflict? No, he says, always. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I say, rejoice. No matter what, we're going through, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much, you know, maybe I'm considering with my kids the outside influences and in and an anxiety and fear, I'm considering how, how does this work? I should continue to find reason to rejoice in the Lord and if I'm struggling to find reason, look at Paul's example all throughout Philippians. He's finding reasons to rejoice in the Lord and an expectation that there will be future reasons to rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because because God is working through Jesus Christ in all of these circumstances. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. We stand firm in the Lord by agreeing in the Lord. And certainly to reach agreement in the Lord, two people whose focus is just adamantly standing firm that I will continue to find reason to rejoice and what the Lord is doing, no matter how difficult things get, that's gonna help in reaching agreement and unity in Christ. In verse five then, he says, let your reason, oh yes, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. My my reasonableness, needs to be known to everyone. What is he talking about here? It needs to be, and, and it's important, it needs to be what's, what's seen, what's known. That, that word behind reasonableness is, is a difficult one to translate. Other versions will translate it gentleness. Um, uh, it's a better English word that matches it is probably mag, uh, magnanimous, magnanimity. That's a word we don't even use, but it, it matches it a little bit better. Um, it has this idea of humility and grace and mercy. Um, it, it's, it, it's the opposite of harsh justice. So as I see that person on the other side crossing a line and, and see the wrongs in their life, I want to hit them there because that takes the focus off of me. That's, that would be the opposite of this. We see this word show up other where, in other places, um, It shows up in the book of James chapter three when it's talking about wisdom. And it says, wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. The word for gentle there is this word that we're supposed to be displaying so well that it's it's what people see. Um, Paul uses it also in 2 Corinthians. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse one. It's in the midst of conflict that Paul's writing this. He says, I, Paul, myself, you get the point? This is Paul. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's saying, I'm entreating you and I'm displaying the character of Christ in meekness and gentleness. That word for gentleness is this word that we are supposed to be, effectively displaying in ourselves so that everyone sees that characteristic in us. What is it we're supposed to be displaying? We're supposed to be displaying the character of Christ. So on this point, how do we stand firm in the Lord? We exemplify the Lord and his character with grace and humility. Boy, how those are essential in the midst of conflict. Whether you're in the primary position of conflict or unfortunately how this works, you can be in the secondary position of conflict or the tertiary position of conflict. Everyone's affected and each of us, no matter where we're at, needs to have this mindset that no, I'm gonna operate in the grace of the Lord, the humility of the Lord. And as I see things that my brother or sister are not doing right, I'm not going to respond with strict justice. No, that is not right. You must change. No, it's gonna be in the gentleness and grace of our Lord that I'm gonna come alongside them to help. If all of us are doing that, we're going to quickly reach a position where we're back into unity that the Lord has for us. And it can be very deceiving how we find ourselves then taking up more of a a strict justice. It's it's one thing, the person who's who's there at the center of it, who's in the wrong, in our mind at least, no, that's in the wrong, but I know I'm supposed to respond in gentleness. And so then I see my brother over here, and boy, he's just responding with harsh justice. And so I come down on him with harsh justice. No, no, even him. Gentleness, mercy, come alongside him and say, no, look, this is how God wants us to respond to these things, in gentleness and mercy. The tertiary person, no, this person's right, this person's wrong, maybe this is where gossip is starting to form, and you say, no, that's gentleness and mercy. What's coming out of our mouth should be grace towards those who are involved. Exemplify the Lord. And then in verse five at the end, he says, the Lord is at hand. This is kind of almost random. It's not really uh, syntactically connected uh, in, in the Greek to anything. It's just he says, the Lord is at hand. And he leaves it ambiguous, I think on purpose. It, it could be in the sense that he's on hand uh, spatially, uh, in, in time that he's on hand, uh, in, in all of those respects, it works because we know that he's present and he's working now here in this time and that he's not far off, but he's working in us, actively working in us. We also know that, that he is at hand, that just the expectation that should be in every one of us is his return. That should be our focus, this eternal focus that, that, that Christ is at hand and he's coming. What In the midst of conflict, I know for me, and I'm sure for you too, we can sometimes forget, wait, Christ is actively working now in me and in you. And we take it upon ourselves to be the one who's working when it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who's supposed to be working, to actually bring about conviction and change in the heart of a person. It's important in the midst of conflict, that we recognize Jesus is at hand through his Holy Spirit. He is physically seated on the throne in heaven. His Holy Spirit is active in each one of us. He's near. It makes it easier for us to rejoice in the Lord when we realize he is actively working And we can see the things that he's working in. All right. This finally brings us stand firm by agreeing in the Lord. Stand firm and agree in the Lord by rejoicing in the Lord, exemplifying the Lord, and finally, By surrendering all to the Lord. These last two verses, if you don't know them, they're worth memorizing. They're worth putting on your refrigerator. They're worth putting on your mirror, on the wall, somewhere where you will see them. Full of direction and promise. Philippians 4 six and seven. And if you consider what it's like to be in the midst of conflict, in the midst of a tough time, in the midst of fear and anxiety, this is where you go. Do not be anxious about anything. Nothing's excluded from that. Don't be anxious about the influence of the world on your kids. Don't be anxious about division in your family, a division in your church, division among the churches in Kyle, division any, anywhere, don't be anxious about it. But in everything, there's nothing excluded from this. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, always with thanksgiving, That's part of rejoicing in the Lord, that every time I'm bringing all of these things to him, it is with thanksgiving for what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. Let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise, the peace. Boy, when we're in the midst of conflict, how sweet is the peace of God. The peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding. Bring up the slide one more time, please. See, it doesn't make sense. It's irreconcilable differences that then God brings peace into, and it's it's peace in His presence. We're bringing everything into His presence. Our conflict, our hurt our differences, everything we're bringing into his presence in prayer and thanksgiving, and then there is peace that results that we can't understand how that happens because it is peace from God that surpasses all understanding. Understand that that's that's the truth, that you're not gonna be able to reconcile why it works or how it works, but that it does work because it's in the power of God that it works, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a place of safety. That word for guard is a military word for guard. They, they had uh, Roman garrisons there within Philippi. They would have understood that this is like a dispatch of soldiers put around the hearts and minds of the people of the church to guard them put around the hearts and minds of our children, of our friends, of our family, to guard them as we bring everything into the presence of God. That is the safest place that we can be. We'll guard them. We'll guard your hearts and your minds. The very things that are the source of conflict, he will guard in Christ Jesus. There is one more thing that he does, I think is included in the thus, stand thus in the Lord. Um, we're not going to cover that today, That'll, we'll touch on that tomorrow. But do you see, and tomorrow, are you going to be here tomorrow? Actually I won't. Next week, sometimes things just, my mind's here. No, we'll touch on that next week, but do you see what we have in Christ? If we're concerned, if we're worried about things, all right, we're anxious about things, or maybe we're in the midst of conflict, everything we need to find a safe place for our family, for us as a church, how do we as a church guard against what good churches have experienced? division. Hurt, influence from the outside. We can do a lot of good things, and we are doing a lot of good things, I believe, as a church. But it's not going to work fully unless we draw near to Jesus. Everything we have in Christ. That we are a people who forget what lies behind, who recognize the surpassing value that we have in Jesus Christ and put aside the things that are behind us and press on towards what we have in him. And in that, we're gonna find no matter how different we are, whether we speak the same language or not, whether God just decided to cut us from the opposite corners of the cloth, it doesn't matter those differences. Because what, surpassing value that we hold in our life is all caught up and found in Christ. So this morning, as we worship at the end here, let's worship Jesus. If you're carrying anxiety, if you're carrying conflict, if there's things that, that are just weighing on your mind still, those things that when you're trying to fall asleep, don't wanna leave your head. That's kind of the litmus test in my own life. Those are things we need to lay down at his feet. Let's do that in worship. Jesus, you are enough. And God, as we meditate on and as we walk in a manner that reflects that truth in our lives, God, I have experienced the greater truth. not only are you enough, Jesus, but you surpass all. You are overwhelmingly great, so far past anything that I would consider in this life as satisfactory, God, you are satisfactory and more. God, open our eyes just to to a piece of the glory of what we have in you so that so that in comparison, these things that seem to creep into our lives, that seem to be so important, would suddenly just to be made nothing, God, in your presence. In you, Jesus, is glory. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Your name is above every name. God, you are working intimately and personally in each of our lives. We get to live in your grace every day. Your mercies are new every morning and God, and we can bring every anxious thought, every fear to you, God, in prayer and lay it at your feet, and your peace, which surpasses all understanding, God, will guard our hearts. What we have in you, God, is treasure. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your holy name we pray, amen.